You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Welcome uh, and uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. We are coming to the end of this series and the last day of the year, uh, the Songs of Christmas. <clears throat> and we have been covering a number of them in the Gospel of Luke specifically, where individuals just sing out, ring out, declare, pro- profess, and in a sense, prophesy about who this Jesus is, this birth. And today we come to the last one. It's called the Song of Simeon. Simeon and then Anna, his counterpart, at the temple 40 days after Jesus' birth, see this little child and proclaim words that uh, basically can elaborate the whole story once again. Um, So we find out from Simeon and from Anna some amazing things about God. And both these songs uh, really uh, put to to bed, I think, the whole idea that Christianity is just about rainbows and unicorns, you know, that everything's just wonderful and nice and it's for nice people to have nice thoughts and nice things. What we find out is that Jesus and what he does is both revolutionary, world-changing, destiny-changing, thank God. So today we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 2. And when the time came, For their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it was written in the law of the Lord. Every male child (coughs) who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And, his, uh, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed and a sword shall, will pierce through your own soul, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up, At the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
So from this text, what we're going to be discovering is that Christmas isn't, like I said, all about unicorns and rainbows and wonderful things and presents and, and good wishes, but it's actually the fact that Jesus, from his birth, from God's plan from forever, was appointed. That's the word, appointed, destined for. He was appointed for these things, to reveal and to expose to ruin and resurrect, and to comfort and free. Quite the list, huh? <laughs> to reveal and to expose. And this comes right out of two words that uh, Simeon tells uh, Mary. First of all, he says at the beginning of this, what's called the nunc dimittis in Latin for now let me depart in peace. Um, when Simeon cries out and says that he's going to be, Jesus will be a light of, for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to the people of Israel. And then later on, when he speaks directly to Mary and to Joseph and says that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That same word is used twice. It's the Greek word apocalypsis, which is where we get the word apocalypse from. And you've heard of snowpocalypse, which ain't happening yet this year, to, you know, traffic apocalypse. Everybody's using this word, but not in the way it was really intended in the Bible. The word is not about a disaster. The word is really of uncovering, of showing, exposing, opening up, seeing things clearly for the first time. So the word really means, and that's where the book Revelation gets this word, it's apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's a revealing and opening up. It's the only way anybody actually knows anything. We wouldn't find it. We couldn't figure it out. It's the fact that it's when Jesus shows up, now we get it. Now we see God. Now we see who he is in person up front. Jesus is going to be a light of revelation, an apocalypse, an uncovering. So what happens when Jesus shows up? <laughs> you know, the, the rest of the Gospel of Luke will show these words are so true that Simeon said, when, when, God show, when Jesus shows up, he uncovers things. He exposes to the light what was all in darkness before. It's rather amazing. Like in his hometown of Nazareth, he shows up there, and he ain't the hometown hero. He comes into the synagogue and starts to proclaim God's word. And you know what the hometown wants to do? It exposes what's really going on under the surface in their lives. They reject him. They, they don't want him so much they are going to throw him off a cliff. He's just shown what's in the human heart. And then, when he does call his disciples, he comes to a man named Peter, Simon Peter, as you probably know, and one of Jesus' first miracles is the catch of so many fish, right? What happens when that miracle happens, when, when Peter sees God's in the flesh in front of him, this appearing of God's miracle in front of him, all that is exposed in Peter's life is his sinfulness, he says, depart from me. Get away, Jesus. I can't be in the presence of someone like you. I am a sinful man. And when Jesus 
goes to Capernaum, a little ways away from Nazareth, his hometown. And he, on a synagogue Sunday, uh, Saturday, when he preaches in that church, the first thing he does is cast out a demon from somebody that's in the church. Tells you what's going on in that place. You see what's going on? Whenever he shows up, he reveals what's really happening under the surface. The inner dialogue, that's kind of what he shows the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. Now, usually we can cover up our thoughts and intentions of our human heart. We do it all the time, right? We don't really let people know what we're thinking. We don't even let ourselves really know what we're thinking. Often we rationalize what's going on in our lives to make it look a lot better than it is. You know, I can cover up at work pretty easily um, by working really hard, and I can cover up my resentments towards others at work and my judgments against everybody else in the office. It's pretty easy to cover that up because everybody else is doing the same thing. <laughs> and every one of us always thinks we're the hardest worker in the office. I can cover up as well, just in my neighborhood, with words like, bless her heart, all the gossip I might share with somebody else. Or I can cover up in church. Boy, church is a place where a lot of people cover things up. You know, say, putting a praise the Lord at the end of a sentence, or a hallelujah, or don't you love it when somebody says, you know, the Lord really touched me and spoke to my heart, and this is what he wants me to do, which is a way to cover up the fact that I just want to do it, and I don't want anybody to make, you know, a judgment about it. I just want to do it. The Lord told me to. Right. Okay. We want to find ourselves always on that side of things, that we have the pure motives, the sincere hearts, and we cover up in so many ways the real intentions and thoughts that are below the surface. And often we want to also then find out there somewhere, expose that, whatever that is, that group, that person over there. But it's really hard to do when Jesus shows up. Because when he shows up, he uncovers it all. It's all clear for the first time, maybe. Alexander Zolzhenitsyn, I don't know if you know who he was and is. He was a Russian dissident who faced the worst of the Stalinist regime, faced the Gulag Archipelago. He wrote a book on just his imprisonment from that. And he's wise enough, though, to not have just labeled that group over there, those Stalinists are the evil ones that need to be destroyed. He realizes much more deeply that there's a bigger problem. He writes this, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. That's what Jesus is uncovering. The fact that it's running right through all of us. Peter, even Mary and Joseph, all of them face the realities that right through the middle of us, we deal with mixed motives, insecurities, idolatries, you name it, it's there. 
John Zoll, in one of his books, puts it this way. We have a natural inclination to view our actions and choices as good and right and valuable, even if they are quite the opposite. And the result is self-justification. If we offend someone, we assume it was they who are too sensitive. If someone criticizes us, we deflect it by classifying them as nitpicky. And who doesn't know us that well anyways? It's interesting how easy it is to make those self-justifying judgments about ourselves. And that's what Jesus shows up and uncovers from the religious people he calls whitewashed tombs. Look good on the outside, but underneath, this is what I see. To even his own disciples, to the rest of the world, to everyone, when he shows up, he reveals the truth. And I can't do anything about that. It's very uncomfortable. In one sense, it would have been wonderful to be able to be in the presence of Jesus. In another sense, it had been unnerving. Because I can't stand in the light of his perfection and his beauty. Maybe more pointedly, Jesus shows up. He shows what's really going on, right? At the deepest, darkest level. Romans 8, 7 says it this way. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. His whole life, he was facing opposition. His whole life, he had people pushing back against him. I mean, the whole reason he was crucified, right? There was no fault in him, but we still did it to him. But you know what also is exposed by Jesus when he shows up is the love and grace and mercy of God. Because it is to that same Peter who said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, that Jesus says, you are mine. I'm calling you as one of my disciples, follow me. He forgives. He graces. He blesses. He does not retaliate. He welcomes. Yes, even when Jesus meets us and shows by the light of his revelation who God is, and even when he shows us who we are under that light and we can't hide it in the darkness, it's the light that overcomes the darkness in the end. It's God's grace. So Simeon then also sings of how that Jesus is appointed to ruin and to resurrect. It's kind of an interesting combination, isn't it? To ruin and to resurrect. Simon, uh, Simeon tells Mary, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, the child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. So that word for fall there is pitosis in the Greek, and it actually is better translated to as downfall or ruin. And actually the word uh, for to the rising of many is anastasis, the same exact word that's used for Jesus' resurrection. So he puts down or puts to death and raises to life. That is what Jesus is going to do. And it's rather amazing that he does it. Thank God he does that. Because 
I think you realize as well as I do <laughs> that this world is pretty fallen already. It's pretty broken. And it feels like it's breaking apart even more in our lifetime, doesn't it? Things seem to be falling apart all over the place. So Jesus doesn't come just to try to cover over or smooth over the rough spots. He says it's fallen and broken and it needs to end in order to raise up something totally new and totally good. Christian, um, a Christian author, Michael Horton, rightly diagnosed a problem within American Christianity. We've turned Jesus Christ into something other than who he is. He writes, we are getting dangerously close to the place in everyday American church life where Jesus Christ is a coach with a good game plan for our victory rather than a savior who has already achieved it for us. You can hear that, I'm sadly to say. I've heard enough other preachers, teachers. I've read enough other books, a lot of Christian self-help, which is almost a contradiction in terms in itself. And yet that's what's going on is he's just a motivational speaker now. Jesus is just a model for how you can live or Jesus is just going to help you along the way. You do not need a coach. You need a savior. And Simeon understands that. Jesus did not come to motivate those who were hapless. He came to save those who were helpless. And to do that, he brings all the good intentions that we think we have and brings them all to himself and puts them to death at the cross. All the tendencies to control and to try to achieve, all the prestige we think we gain by everything, no, I can handle it myself, attitudes. And he puts that to death in order to raise up a whole new way to live. It might seem contrary to what you thought maybe a savior would do, but Simeon understands it quite necessary because Simeon understood the history of Israel. Simeon, someone like him, would have read the prophets, who would have read the Torah, and would have memorized many portions of those scriptures. And over time, he realized that the whole story of Israel, if you read the history, the story, the narrative of the Hebrew Bible, and all these different prophets, you find out they're critiquing the whole enterprise. He realizes that time and again, Israel, even when they were called, did not live up to anywhere near their calling. In fact, even the whole enterprise of setting up a king like the other nations was a total huge mistake from the beginning. And that every attempt that they had tried and everything that they had done was a big failure. And when they went into exile finally in Babylon and came back from that exile, they never really left exile. They came back to a piece of property, but they were still under the bondage of their brokenness and their inabilities. And Simeon says he is looking for the consolation of Israel that when he had seen the Lord's Messiah, he knew it would take someone other than Israel to save Israel. He knew it would take someone other than a regular human being to bring a light to the nations of the world. That Israel had failed, 
that humanity had fallen and God had to intervene in some other way. We need a savior, not a coach, not a motivator. Philip Rook Jones puts it this way. He says, Jesus promises in the word of the cross nothing less than the death and nothing more than a glorious new life. All things are made new as we see and live in the reality Jesus reveals to us. In other words, that's what he does. He ruins our plans. He, He ruins our thoughts of control. He ruins, he lets it all fall apart. And you may have experienced that existentially at times in order to resurrect and give you something even better, a whole new life. And finally, to comfort and to free. As I mentioned, the word uh, consolation or comfort of Israel comes up in this text. And what's fascinating is the Greek word paraklesis. It's the same word that's used at the comforter, the Holy Spirit, elsewhere in the gospel presentations. Uh, In the gospel of John, for instance, para, to come alongside, call out. And so Jesus is to be the comfort because he stands alongside of us. He comes right into this world. Simeon understood we needed a real savior in the real world. We don't need... Um, a plastic savior, a fake savior, or someone above or beyond or just looking and observing from a distance, but someone who would live right alongside of us, right in our circumstances, and that's what Jesus does. What's amazing is we don't talk about glossing over and make. We're dealing with reality in Christianity, and what Christianity does does not gloss over issues in this world. It deals with redeeming the reality of this world. And that's what Simeon understood. That we would be able to, that God would come to redeem Israel and the world. He writes, Lord, now let, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. What's fascinating is, The word for depart here in this text is really not, I don't know if it's the best translation. It's the Greek word apoluo, which really means to free or to release. Because what Simeon realized is this world was bound up, was stuck, was imprisoned to its own selfishness and self-centeredness. And he was now seeing, here's the key that unlocks the door. Here is the Savior, the Messiah, who's going to free us. You know, so often I think we assume we're free when we're not so free. You know, I can make whatever choice I want, but look at the choices I make. (laughs) Have you ever noticed? New Year's resolutions. How many of you are going to take, any of you do New Year's resolutions anymore? Why don't you anymore? I don't keep them. What, you do? I don't keep mine if I make them, right? Maybe I'm making the resolution not to make resolutions. (laughs) That That one I might keep. But the, the point is, I don't have the power necessarily over myself. I know what I should be eating and not eating or how much. Hmm. I already know 
what I should be doing to care for this body. I know what would be best in terms of my productivity. You do too, right? Well, why aren't we doing it? We're not as free as we think we are. We're stuck. Simeon understood this. He was stuck too. Israel was stuck. Israel on its own would never do what it needed to do. It could not keep the law. It could not keep all the rules. And the last thing I need to do as a preacher or anybody is to just throw more rules at you or give you more advice or should on you or guilt you or even try to motivate you and coax you because that only will work for only so long or put the fear of God into you as in, you know, scare you a little. And that motivates for a short period of time until you have to do it again and again and again. And the assumption, I think, when preachers and teachers and others do that, whether they're politicians or instructors or anyone, is that you are absolutely free to make a good choice. The reality in the Bible is we don't really make that great of choices. We're more stuck than we realize. Stephen Paulson puts it this way, there's a vast difference it makes for a preacher to stand before a congregation and assume their wills are bound rather than to stand before a group and assume their wills are merely in need of motivation. In other words, if I understand how stuck I am and you are at times, what I need to share with you is what will free you. If I think you're already free and you can make good choices all the time, then all I need to do is give you advice and, and bind you. Too many preachers are trying to bind people to new rules instead of freeing them with the gospel. You see, the gospel that Jesus is going to bring is really going to free you. It frees you by Jesus himself being bound and nailed to a cross. He releases you by himself being captivated by your sin. He unchains you by taking the nails into his hands and feet. Jesus frees you, and for freedom you have been set free by the gospel. And the word of God's grace, as John Zoll puts it, is the overarching never say never, covenantal, all-encompassing, law-subsuming, utterly distinct, absolutely committed, won't take no for an answer, able to jump over a building in a single bound, non-neurotic, calming, spice of life, surprising, unexpected, unwavering, indissoluble voice of God who says, you are free, you are forgiven, you are loved, you are mine, and I will never let you go. And that frees you from trying to do it yourself and trusting him who has accomplished it. And that's why this song of Christmas, I think, is maybe um, a good one to end on because it's not just the last one in the Gospel of Luke, but it's because Jesus is the one who is appointed to reveal and expose the, the self-justifications that we've all tried to do in the rationalizations at the same time to put those and ruin that whole plan and resurrect 
the good news, the gospel into our lives to give you true comfort and true peace and true freedom. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this word from Simeon, how he understood Israel stuck and still in exile, and how through, Lord, your birth, your life, your death and resurrection, Lord Jesus, you would free this world from itself, from our, all our plans and ideologies of trying to do it our way and our own way to control it, to win over what we already are given or what you give so freely, Lord. We thank you for the gospel. We pray, Lord, in this new year as we approach it, Lord, that you will show us our freedom and that we can live into that freedom and into the justification uh, that you've given us your uh, true grace in our lives so that we are not... Um, burdened by trying to guilt ourselves into doing things, but we are free to love and to serve and to give freely, Lord. Bless, Lord, um, all those who are, are traveling through the holidays. We know so many in our, our fellowship who are uh, right now um, on the road or will be on the road in the next few days or in the air. We pray that you would protect them and bring them back here, Lord to be at home with you, to be effectively used by you in the coming year. We pray for all the students, Lord, um, that will uh, be coming back in a week to FGCU and all college students as they travel back to school, Lord. Bless them and keep them uh, in your peace, Lord God. We pray for this new year that it would be a year filled with your grace and goodness that we would understand more, Lord, how you are working in this world in a kind of an upside-down way as Simeon, as Mary, as Zechariah, have even the angels, Lord, sung about for your birth. Lord, as we approach um, the Lord's table today, as you give yourself to us, Lord Jesus, with bread and wine, we pray that you would um, forgive us, Lord, for our sins, for all of our uh, self-salvation ways, all the ways that we try to do it on our own, to try to control, try to just use you to get what we want. Forgive us, Lord. Renew us and lead us. Because we know if we say we have no sin, we just are deceiving ourselves. We need you as our Savior, Lord, not as a motivational coach. We need you as the one to change us, to change our status, and we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have, that you are faithful and just. You forgive us our sins and you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We pray, Lord, that you would use us in this coming year as you see fit and to use Thrive in the way that you would uh, have us in this community, both at FGCU and in the greater community, Lord, that you would make the difference in our lives. All this we lift up to you this day confident that you will end this year with us and you'll begin this new year as well with us and for us. In Jesus' name, amen.